Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Stephanie Seguino, who is Professor of Economics at the University of Vermont. Her research focuses on the economics of stratification and inequality. In the policy arena, she has contributed to research on macroeconomic policy tools for financing and promoting gender equality. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with um, your paper from 2018, The Cause of Exclusion, Gender, Job, Segregation, Structural Change, and the labor share of income, in which you say while women's share of un- uh, women's share of employment has risen in many countries over the last two decades, gender job segregation has worsened, with women increasingly excluded from good jobs in the industrial sector. Uh, uh, and you say the determinants of gender job segregation are assessed using panel data in this paper for a broad set of developing countries covering the period 1991 and 2015. Um, That's a rich data set, (laughs) I would think. And, um, you know, purely from a utilitarian perspective, um, Stephanie, I'm always baffled by uh, this phenomenon. Um, Any hiring decision that uses some sort of arbitrary segmentation, whether it's gender or uh, or race or something like that uh, can be shown unambiguously leading to shareholder shareholder laws, uh, but uh, shareholder wealth laws, I should say. Uh, but this is uh, a, a phenomenon that appears to perpetuate, and you say it's getting worse. Correct. Right. So, so what does the data tell us from a trend perspective? So this is you know going back to nineteen ninety one, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, I, f- I think, you know, it might help to contextualize what we found. Um, as many people may know, many of the major international organizations, including the World Bank, the United Nations, uh, and to a lesser extent, the IMF, 
have been promoting gender equality over the last 20, 25 years. And, uh, and what we've observed, one of the things that has been most promoted is educational equality. Yeah. And so, in fact, gender gaps in education have diminished quite substantially all over the world. In fact, in many countries, women's educational attainment is higher than men's for a variety of reasons. Uh, in the Caribbean, for example, and of course, perhaps many people know in the United States that women now are the overwhelming majority of university students. So the argument that uh, people had about promoting educational equality was that was what was holding women back. And that if we close the educational gap, that um, the employment gap would close and the income gap would close. But what we found instead was that uh, the employment gap closed, but not nearly as much as the educational gap. Uh, and, and then what we learned uh, from this paper, but some from prior research that gave us a, you know, a sense to go in this direction, is that uh, in terms of, although women have been increasingly integrated into the economy, they have been integrated under inferior terms. That is, they get the lowest wage jobs with the least benefits and the least job security. Uh, and we and so industrial jobs we consider to be good jobs relative to the alternatives, which tend to be low low wage service sector jobs and jobs in the agricultural sector. This is particularly true for developing countries. And so what we find is they're increasingly excluded from those jobs. And I think the major mechanism going on is the impact of hyper globalization, um, the the growth of inequality which has led to um, insufficient demand, if you will, for manufactured goods. And so manufacturing firms are not increasing output as much. And as a result of that, they are also not increasing employment. And so what you see is this declining share of good jobs in the economy, industrial sector jobs, that correlates with the decline in industrial production in many countries. And so, when that happens, the, the, the structures of stratification, and by that I mean racial and gender hierarchies, create a scenario in which the dominant groups, the most privileged groups, are more able to gain access to those jobs. Uh, and so what we see then is that kind of sorting in which uh, it's typically men, and particularly white men, that are at the front of the line in getting these increasingly scarce jobs. Uh, another part of the industrialization story, of course, is that with industrialization, especially in countries like South Korea and Taiwan and, um, and others of that nature, is that they are moving up into more capital intensive jobs, jobs in which uh, there are fewer workers per unit of output. And so, again, there's less demand for workers. And when there's less demand for workers, then there's competition over who gets those jobs and Although many people think that it's just based on your qualifications, the reality is that uh, we have in our head uh, norms about who's most deserving of jobs when jobs are scarce. And yeah. the answer to that is that it typically is people from the dominant group. Yeah, so, so this trend is now clear, right? Um, you know, people used to use arguments such as education disparity, um, women taking time off um, uh, for bringing up children. Um, we have removed a lot of those features 
and we still see the outcome <laughs> uh, to be uh, not desirable. So, so the data is becoming clearer and clearer um, what is going on in the economy. And, you know, I don't know a lot about this, Stephanie, but my feeling is that, you know, a, a human, uh, <laughs> the best way to think about a human is a collection of biases. And uh, every individual is a collection of biases and we operate on that. Um, and so any decision that we are making is based on that. So I always wondered, you know, any sort of regulatory changes, any sort of, you know, um, uh, kind of an institutional efforts in this area, uh, it is ultimately going to have a beneficial effect. What, what are your thoughts on that? Can we change this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I always say to my students that any problem that humans create, humans can solve. So this is no different than that. Um, yeah. And and so, uh, first of all, it, it requires becoming aware of the problem. Um, and then it requires addressing the problem. We see this, um, uh, you know, even now in Silicon Valley, for example, or in tech firms that women are excluded because it is, you know, uh, sort of a male dominated environment. And so I think as in many problems, you become aware of it and you begin to think about how to redress that problem because it is not due to skill differentials. Yeah. Uh, so maybe one solution, for example, if employers are worried that women are not going to stay on the job as long because of care responsibilities, then the one of the solutions is that uh, that care work is more equitably distributed. That yeah. is that we develop public child care centers, uh, subsidized child care, and we create laws uh, or rules that, which allow men also to partake in caring for children. So if, if that's the impediment, that's one solution. Uh, the other solution, of course, is that there's a shortage of good jobs. And so one possibility is that we work harder to make jobs in the service sector good jobs. They tend to be less unionized, for example, uh, and in general tend to have, have far fewer benefits than jobs in the industrial sector of the economy. So that's another solution. And the other, of course, is policies like affirmative action uh, or, um, you know, uh, numerical goals with regard to employment equity. So it, it's not an impossible problem to solve. Uh, it is simply one that requires recognition and then the political will to do that. Yeah. So, so what do we see in the data cross-sectionally? Uh, since you looked at a lot of uh, developing countries, uh, how, what differences do we see? Well, uh, I, I will say this, that uh, we looked at developed countries and developing countries separately. Yeah. And you might have argued, you know, you might think, well, maybe it's different in, you know, in sort of the so-called advanced economies. But in fact, we see the same trends there. And I, I think it's really important for people to understand that what's going, what's driving this in part is the impact of globalization. Uh, globalization has resulted in, uh, in sort of a, a job bifurcation, if you will. And um, there are those jobs that are, are, um, are uh, more susceptible to global competition 
And therefore, uh, that competition holds wages down and benefits down. And that tends to be in export sector jobs in semi-industrialized economies like electronics and, uh, and garment manufacturing and so on and so forth. And in those countries, you often also see sort of higher wage uh, industrial jobs like in semiconductors, shipbuilding, cement, uh, automobile manufacturing. And so we see that phenomenon going on. And those jobs are not as susceptible to the pressures, the wage pressures of globalization. But I want to let me just talk a little bit about what's happening in developed countries, especially the United States. Uh, part of what's gone on is we have lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. And early on, the ones we lost tend to be the kind of jobs that women held or were more female dominated, shall we say. And increasingly, even the more sophisticated manufacturing jobs have been lost to outsourcing and overseas. And what we've observed is that a lot of men have left the labor force because they've lost their good jobs and they're unwilling to take low wage, dead end service sector jobs. Whereas women, many women who have joined the labor force and are taking these inferior jobs are doing it as what we sometimes call distressed sales of labor. They're doing it because their husbands have lost their jobs, their family income has declined. And so women are, are, are willing to take these low wage jobs. They've gone back to school to get, you know, a, a nursing degree or home health aid uh, qualifications and so forth. Whereas men are sidelined because they are unwilling to take those lower status jobs. And so, as I said, I think what's most important to understand here is that globalization has drawn a lot of women into the labor force, but they have been sequestered in the lowest wage, most inferior jobs. Uh, and the, the shrinking number of good industrial jobs continues to be considered part of the male domain because of the stereotype that men are breadwinners or that they are more deserving of good jobs. Yeah. So, so that's very interesting. So if loss of jobs uh, is making this problem worse, um, I, I would think that we just started it, um, you know, as you know, with the application of artificial intelligence and robotics and other advancements, um, we are going to continue to lose, you know, sort of the, the, the jobs that we used to think about because much of the repeating activities uh, could be done by machines in the future. Um, and so do you see this problem? So, so if your hypothesis is right, which is men losing jobs and they are not yet willing to see reality uh, and hence women take uh, take jobs to just survive, and they're willing to take lower paid jobs, that problem is going to get worse as we look forward, right? Yeah, you know, in fact, I just wrote a paper, uh, a book chapter on this particular topic in terms of gender and industrial policies, uh, you know, related to countries that are industrializing, and in some cases with these new technologies. And yes, that's absolutely the case. Although with these new technologies, the problem isn't just that they require less labor, but also just in the process in terms of the product design, for example, in uh, engineering and software firms that are contributing to this, we see women are uh, discri discriminated against in a, in a very harsh way, not, you know, in, in not in a subtle way. That is that they are harassed at work. 
uh, it you know is considered to be a male space, and so it discourages women from entering those jobs, uh, even if there were enough slots available. But even further back in the university, engineering programs and computer programs tend to uh, be very harsh environments for women. I mean, here at my university, at the University of Vermont, women frequently tell me that it is a very unwelcome space to be in the engineering program. So at every level there, we associate, you know, there's a stereotype that associates uh, industrial production, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, engineering and so forth with men. And so that stereotype, I've, I've often argued acts as a stealth factor that people may not even be conscious of it, that they evaluate people differently for these jobs based on their gender, because in their heads, when they, they the, the perfect person for these jobs, they see as male, whereas they see, you know, the, the stereotype is that women are not good at math, they're not good at engineering, which is of course not true, uh, but that's part of the process. So at every step of the, uh, the process here, whether it's at the university, in the firms that are doing the product designs or in the actual industrial production, uh, these are seen as male dominated spaces primarily yeah. because they're good jobs. Uh, and at every step, whether it's male professors, whether it is these uh, Silicon Valley, you know, CEOs or, or even the employees there, there's discrimination against women. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up in, in India, uh, Stephanie, uh, my undergraduate program there, uh, the university used to take 250 people in my batch. Uh, there were two women it was an engineering school, <laughs> uh, two women and rest of them men. And that ratio uh, seemed to have improved quite, quite a bit the last 10, 15 years. I haven't seen any data, but that's my intuition. Uh, do you see that happening um, in developing countries in general? You know, actually in some developing countries, there is actually more space for women. There's more, women are more welcome. Uh, than in the United States or in Europe, for example. So, uh, you know, we often tend to think that gender inequality is worse in developing countries than in industrialized countries, but certainly in a number of Asian economies, uh, women have been more welcome into those spaces than in the industrialized West. Yeah, but but I would think that if you if you look at the outcomes as you as you are doing here in terms of wage disparity. And you see sort of education equalization happening over time, mm -hmm. but you don't that you don't see that floating into wage equality. Then you have to assume that there are other other forces uh, that prevents that, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wage inequality is uh, it's a complex process, right? We tend to see, for example, at at the entry level. There, the gender gaps are not as wide, but they grow over time. In other words, the longer a person's job tenure, the wider the gender wage gaps. And um, the, that process, that, that phenomenon, uh, we can econometrically uh, measure, but my own experience in working in institutions and watching the processes of hiring, firing, uh, promotion, uh, and access to administrative positions, for example, just um, shows me in some ways how invisible the discrimination is, the bias, I would say bias is, in terms of who to promote and who's seen as deserving of a more 
uh, authoritative role within organizations, who gets opportunities. Uh, so it happens just at every stage of the game, but at the entry level, uh, in many cases, the gap is not that wide. Yeah, it's interesting, Stephanie. In 2009, in one of my books, um, I argued that, uh, and this may, be, <laughs> this may be a difficult thing for people to internalize, I argued that um, men are not, um, they don't really have the skills uh, to manage complex organizations. So large companies, countries, um, they have sort of a process orientation uh, from an evolutionary perspective. So uh, that process orientation is not that helpful to manage complex situations. And uh, we can see, you know, you know most of uh, the recent iteration, we had, uh, you know, uh, macho men of large countries failing uh, in COVID uh, management uh, compared to countries like New Zealand, uh, Taiwan, and Germany doing a lot better. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, in some sense, we got this wrong, I think, right? Um, it is not just we need equality. It's almost like we have wrong people in wrong jobs because, because as you say, that society has a dominant uh, dominant uh, group who is making decisions. Boy, uh, I, you know, uh, what you've said really just stimulates me to say something, and that is that so much of the focus in the discussion about um, inequality, whether it is racial inequality or gender inequality, uh, often focuses on what some people would argue are the deficits of women in terms of their personalities or their uh, care responsibilities or people, uh, you know, or blacks and Latinos, for example, for their, whatever the stereotypes are. But I think that we, we actually um, fail to look at the attributes of the dominant group. And in, let me speak just about men, that there is a sort of toxic masculinity that we are observing whether it is due to gun violence or it is due to, for example, the behavior of Trump and Bolsonaro, uh, for example, as these authoritarian leaders who, uh, who have a sort of, uh, you know, braggadocio mentality, but not one that is focused on the collective and collective well-being. And, uh, you know, that's because men are socialized differently. And of course, those are two extreme examples but it, you know, there is, a, you know, there are some challenges around masculinity, I believe, that really merit looking at. Uh, with regard to the Great Recession of 2008, uh, you may or may not have read uh, an article that was written by Elizabeth Prugel that was called, if the Lehman Brothers had been the Lehman Sisters, would we have had this crisis? <laughs> and there is some evidence uh, that, you know, that this sort of reckless, behavior in financial institutions and banking institutions was a function of this sort of, you know, I, you know, I don't really like the term, well, the term, but, you know, sort of testosterone driven uh, reckless risk, excessive risk taking uh, by especially young men in these organizations. And that's part of their socialization. Whereas, you know, uh, it could be that women are uh, more socialized to be ensure the well-being of the family, of those around them, they're more other-oriented, other-regarding, and behave differently as leaders. But I want to emphasize that 
if we go too far down that path, we risk essentializing men and women. We're all products of our social environment. So there are some women who are not nurturing and there are some men who are very caring and thoughtful with regard to the collective well-being. And the problem, I think, is essentializing any group to be biologic, biologically the way it is. We're socialized to behave the way we're behaving. And that's a problem to, yeah. that we need to address, especially with regard to masculinity. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, so what what you're saying is that it's not it's not a biological issue. Uh, obviously, you know, fifty thousand years of evolution, we are we are far beyond that. Uh, but modern socialization puts you into buckets uh, with certain characteristics. It is true that, for example, in Wall Street, a lot of the traders are men. And I've seen some data. I can't quite remember um, when I when I read this paper, but it has actually shown that women are a lot better traders, uh, but there aren't too many women traders um, on Wall Street. Um, so again, you know, you mentioned this, you know, sort of risk management uh, is not in, men are not inherently very good at it, probably because of the socialization issues that you talk yeah. about. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I'd be interested to see, uh, you know, the data and reasons why women trade more diff differently than men. But that's a, a a really interesting example. Yeah. Yeah. And so so going back to the paper. Um, and so you, you mentioned that at least at the education level in developing countries, they appear to be more egalitarian are more receptive, whereas in developed countries, we seem to be going in the wrong direction. Did you find a difference between, say, U.S. and EU in this dimension? You know, uh, I, we actually didn't look at countries at the individual level. Um, they we need to pool data in order to be able to say something. And in time series data, uh, we only have a limited number of years. So our, we... So we, we collectively analyze developed countries. Okay, okay. Do you have an intuition if, if the U.S. is very different from EU or they're about the same from a developed world perspective? Um, there, it's a little bit worse in the United States than in, uh, in yeah. European countries, but it actually varies by European countries. Some European countries do better than others. Um, you know, so... Southern Europe is very different than Northern Europe, for example, or Eastern Europe and so forth. So uh, pooling Europe together is, is an amalgam of a lot of different cultures around gender. Uh, so it's hard to, you know, although we're talking about a European average, there's differences across Europe. Yeah. And I know that you have done a lot of work in macroeconomic policy arena as well. So do you see you know, some sort of a policy such as guaranteed income, uh, something along those lines could could substantially change the equation? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So I think uh, I would say that there are policy, macro level policies that could address this issue. The uh, policy of guaranteed income is a social, what I would call a social welfare policy, which is separate from the production system. So yes, you can solve a lot of problems with social welfare systems uh, in terms of if 
people don't have enough income, providing them income support. But there are also things that we could do to give equitable access to jobs. Um, one of the things, one of the most surprising yeah. things in, in our, this paper that I found were uh, two things. One was the the fact that uh, <clears throat> tariffs actually improved women's access to good jobs. And uh, let me explain that in a story fashion because it's easier to understand. Uh, especially in developing countries, women have been a much larger share of the manufacturing, they've been a large share of the manufacturing sector. And uh, with the arrival of China to the World Trade Organization, as well as the pressure on developing countries to lower their tariffs, uh, what it often meant is that these countries were, uh, the, the manufacturing sector, such as in Southern Africa is an example of this, their manufacturing sectors were decimated. And it was largely women that lost their jobs. So I think that a different trade policy would be beneficial, would help address some of these things. Um, the other thing we found that was really substantial was that what we call the capital to labor ratio, which is basically the capital intensity of production, was a, a strong factor in women's access to industrial sector jobs. And what that means is that as a country moves up the industrial ladder, uh, to more sophisticated production of goods, uh, women are increasingly excluded from those jobs. And again, I say it could be because the employer fears that women, that in, uh, investing and in training women will be wasted because they might leave to have children. Uh, it could be because those jobs are scarce and there's a gender hierarchy about who has right, the right to those jobs. But there are remedies, uh, including affirmative action, or many, many companies get government grants. You could make government grants conditional on equitable access to employment. So there's a variety of macro level policies in the production sector that could address this problem. Uh, I might add, by the way, that we also see this with regard to race. Um, and so it is, it, you know, we, and I, I would argue we have two systems of stratification, a gender and a race. Uh, racial stratification system. And although this paper was focused on gender because gender data are more available, I think there is some evidence that this phenomenon is going on in the U.S. with regard to race as well. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about this, Stephanie, but my intuition is that, um, you know, slowing down globalization, free trade policies, um, even though it might have some tactical benefit, um, it sounds to me that, you know, it's sort of a Band-Aid uh, policy. I don't know if it'll have long-term beneficial effects. What, what, what do you think? When you, you, when you said slowing down globalization? Yeah. So, for example, you know, tariffs, you know, so you say, you know, South Africa lost manufacturing jobs uh, by the arrival of China. If South Africa sort of artificially kept manufacturing jobs in South Africa, then the situation could be different, but wouldn't that be a policy that is, you know, doomed to fail uh, well, over time? Well, I think that people, I'm gonna suggest that people, uh, that we have to rethink the way we think about globalization and any trade policy. Uh, South Korea was an, is an example of a country that erected enormous trade barriers and subsidized uh, a variety of industries, nationalized their banks and used subsidized credit to move the economy towards the production of uh, industrial goods in strategic sectors. 
I think what we have to remember here is that policy has to be, the goal has to be to meet people's needs. Free trade in and of itself is, is not, should not be the goal and is not necessarily the one that's going to get us where we want to go. I would argue, and many of my colleagues in, in, who do similar work to I, that I do would argue that managed trade is the right kind of trade policy and is that you, that you have to define what your goal is. Is your goal employment growth? Is it income growth? Uh, is it to reduce gender inequality, to reduce ra racial inequality? Is it to reduce, you know, um, environmental destruction? Those are the real goals. And any kind of trade policy or foreign investment policy needs to be subservient to those goals. So for South Korea, for many years, they had erected very stiff trade barriers so that they protected their industries long enough to develop the, uh, the efficiency to be able to compete in global markets. And indeed, Europe and the United States, that is precisely how they developed also. They, you know, what we, it's what we call the infant industry um, justification for, uh, for trade restrictions. And uh, there's a, a great book written by Hajun Chang at Cambridge University called Kicking Away the Ladder, in which he argues that the rich countries they used all of these protectionist measures in order to help develop their own domestic industries. And once they began, began able to compete on international markets, they uh, lowered their barriers. But now through their power in the World Trade Organization, the World Bank and so forth, they're basically kicking away the ladder of poor countries to also industrialize. And uh, so I would argue that the whole discussion of globalization has to be subservient to what is good for developing countries in terms of raising their standards of living. Yeah, that, that's a complex, complex problem. If, you know, uh, you know, one could argue that any segmentation scheme is going to be suboptimum. And, and so countries in the in the grand scheme of things, in the modern context, you don't really need countries, right? Uh, you know, you, you could look at the world as a system and you can manage it that way, but, you know, obviously we are not anywhere close to that uh, with 200 different countries. Um, and, and so the, I think what you're arguing is that given time, given today, and given the disparities that we see, uh, the optimum policy for developing countries is, is different from what developed countries might suggest as, as globally optimal. Yes, right? absolutely. But it, it is unclear to me, but you know, um, doesn't it have the risk, Stephanie, you know, such a policy could quickly get into, you know, sort of everybody for, uh, for himself and herself type. <laughs> type I'm sorry, can you say that again? You know, so if we go back to, you know, kind of strategic trade, um, you know, strategic incubation of industries uh, in, in developing countries, wouldn't that, uh, you know, isn't there a risk of these countries, um, getting into a situation that everybody for himself and herself type situation? I think that in the absence of that, what we have is the rich countries calling the shots in a way that benefits them and in a way that benefits 
a number of multinational corporations that have benefited from their differential power. So I, I, what I see is a system that we have right now that has suppressed the, the development of poor countries. And, uh, and I think that's deeply concerning. So I, I think I, I would certainly want to weight heavily uh, any policies that would promote the growth and development of poor countries today in which uh, lifespans are very short and life is very hard. Uh, I would think that, you know, globally, that's where we would want to go and we should be supporting those countries to do that. But what has happened is that the dominant countries, the U.S. and Europe and Japan, influence international organizations such as the WTO and World Bank, and the rules are in their favor. And we're seeing that right now with COVID, right? Uh, the ability to generate a vaccine to inoculate, uh, vaccinate much of the world is possible were it not for the patent rights of the uh, pharmaceutical firms that have developed the vaccines. And uh, that is once again, an example of the rich countries generating rules that benefit them, but often disadvantage poor countries. Yeah, there are two issues there, uh, right, Stephanie? One is obviously without patent protection, we won't get R&D um, because these are profit, profit maximizing entities. Uh, but in my view, the larger problem is uh, kind of misunderstanding what we are trying to do. A uh, pandemic is a worldwide pandemic. We've got 8.4 billion people. To get to herd immunity, you, got, you have to get 6 billion people vaccinated. So it, it doesn't really make sense for one country or the other to say, I'm going to get to herd immunity within my country. It doesn't work like that, right? And so, so when you think about vaccines, the optimum distribution of vaccines has to be looked at from the world perspective. I think we, we completely missed that. Uh, that's, that's my view. What, 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 what do you well, think? Well, I mean, I that? think you have a really good point. Uh, the problem that we're facing right now is that there is the WTO um, uh, is being requested to relax restrictions, uh, patent restrictions, that the pharmaceutical companies are using to block production of more vaccines. And that many developing countries have combined to ask for a waiver to those patent protection rules because of the global pandemic. But the pharmaceutical companies are fighting this. And unfortunately, the US government and in my understanding, European governments are supporting pharmaceuticals and are unwilling to advocate at the WTO for this waiver that is needed. So that's an example of what I mean about um, the rich countries and their influence over these international organizations in a way that really disadvantages poor countries. Uh, if, if, and I, I would agree with you, Gil, that, um, that it is a global pandemic and the best thing we could do right now is to make that, put that in for the, the knowledge of vaccine production into the public domain and to uh, to generate to generate the vaccines needed for global distribution in a short period of time, but unfortunately, the global uh, infrastructure, the global economic infrastructure, and the power of the Western countries is blocking that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, so that's one issue. We also have we don't really have a worldwide organization. Uh, that has the the power and accountability 
to to counteract a pandemic, a worldwide mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, and so we have a patchwork of policies. Every country is sort of trying different things on its own. Uh, and, and none of these are going to be useful to get uh, for for humans to get to herd immunity mm-hmm. against COVID, right? And so, yeah, and this is just one discontinuity the world has faced. There, there will be many more like this. So do you see, uh, we are up to a point that we may need to rethink how the world organizations are structured. Perhaps we need different architecture. Um, you know, people worry about a meteor hit. People worry about other discontinuities that the world could face in the future. And if every country sort of have their own policy to counteract something that is systemic, we are going to... Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I I think, you know, in a more philosophical sense, if you will, um, I think that, you know, that's, you know, we're in this process as human beings uh, in living more uh, in a more connected way across the globe because of new technologies that allow us to do that. But we have not developed the institutions that allow us to coordinate. I mean, this is true just in terms of macroeconomic policy, just in terms of policies during financial crises, for example. We don't have those structures in place. And I will say that this is what, this is why globalization, I think, has been painful. Uh, and uh, and that is that what has happened with globalization basically is that the ability of corporations to move across borders has been increased due to free trade and liberalization of investment rules. So they become disembedded from their local communities and their responsibility to their local communities. And so now we see corporations and financial firms that basically you know, roam the globe looking for the highest rate of return. Uh, but it, it has increased their bargaining power disproportionately relative to governments and relative to workers and relative to the environment. Um, so that they're uh, so that they this this is one of the reasons we have this extraordinary growth of inequality globally. Uh, it is why we've had this you know this process of financialization in which financial interests have gained much more power to veto any country's macroeconomic policy that is elected by citizens you know that is democratically chosen by. Uh, elections of of lawmakers. So I think at at many levels, we are in a process of probably at least a couple hundred years of moving beyond our borders, developing global labor organizations, global environmental organizations, and many others to solve these problems. So I agree with you, you know, in your analysis of this, I I think that we, we have to work in the direction of those organizations. And at the same time, it's a slow process. I will say that uh, to the extent that we continue to face financial and economic crises that have largely been um, that have been precipitated by globalization, it uh, cooperation across borders becomes much more difficult. Uh, there, you know, there's a, a, a hibernation or uh, you know a response of pulling back and just looking out for my own or your own uh, in hard times, rather than we need to uh, go you know, to, to weather this uh, collectively. So, you know, I say that philosophically, I understand collectively the process we're in. Uh, I also understand evolutionarily that, you know, human beings uh, 
lived in very small communities for many, many more years than we've lived in large communities. And we are learning to live together in large groups, but we have many brain impediments to living collectively right. in terms of implicit bias, for example. It's one way we see this. Stereotyping is a, a, a mechanism for processing a lot of information very quickly that is needed when you meet strangers or large groups of people that you don't know. And so our brains are developing. And so, you know, I'm hopeful for the long run, but the short run, it's a very bumpy ride. <laughs> right, right. We'll take a, we'll take a quick break, uh, Stephanie. When we come back, we'll talk about your um, recent paper on relations in Vermont. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So Stephanie, we are back. Um, you have a, a recent paper, Driving Wild Black and Brown in Vermont, Can Race State Analysis Contribute to Reform? You say many states now require law enforcement to collect race data on traffic stops, but there has been little research on the use of that data to inform public policy or reform efforts at the agency level. So, so you have some data from Vermont. So, so what are you finding in this data? Uh, we have found in this data, we use a variety of indicators to look at what happens during a traffic stop. So we look at the racial shares of stops yeah. compared to the racial share of drivers. We look at differences in arrest rates by race, search rates, uh, the percent of search, percentage of searches that result in contraband being found, and a few other indicators. And uniformly, almost uniformly across all of the agencies, uh, in our study, what we found was that uh, black, uh, black drivers are treated more negatively than white drivers, as well as Hispanic drivers are treated more negatively than white drivers. Um, and this is, um, you know, perhaps for some people very surprising for those who are familiar with the United States and Vermont, it is perceived to be a, a, a socially progressive state. And yet our disparities here are uh, as bad as if not worse than in a variety of states such as North Carolina or Missouri or Illinois that are more often in the news with regard to racial inequality. Yeah. And so if you go to sort of the disease level here, um, so do we have any data on the outcomes Um so, so the, 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 these are different things. There is search, there is stoppage, uh, there are other um, other uh, type of data here. So, uh, do we have any any information on the outcomes? Yes, and so in terms of the outcomes of the stop, right? There are several outcomes of the stop. There, you could get a warning, you could get a ticket, you could get arrested, um, and. Uh, we find that uh, the arrest rate for black drivers is higher than for white drivers. The search rate is in some towns is literally five to six times higher 
for black drivers than white drivers. And we find that uh, when I ask officers, why is that so? They say, well, it's black and brown drivers that are bringing in drugs from out of state. That's the stereotype. Yeah. And yet when we look at the contraband hit data, meaning the percentage of uh, searches in which contraband is found, what we find is that actually that officers are less likely to be f find contraband in searches of black and Hispanic drivers than they do of white drivers. So, yeah, uh, this is uh, sort of a brain reprogramming problem. Um, and so, so, so you have a set of biases when you go in and uh, streaming data doesn't appear to have any effect on those biases. And so I think th this is what you're addressing, right? So are we using the data to, to essentially the, the, these, um, you know, the, the, the folks who make these decisions have to have some sort of a brain reprogramming uh, and the data has to be put in context somehow, right? Yes, right. So, you know, I think that um, in here in Vermont, I mean, I, what, what I often say when I talk to police departments and community groups about these results is that the data are really a way to hold a mirror up to ourselves uh, about practices that we, we may not know that we're actually engaging in. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a case recently in which a, um, an officer, there was a complaint against an officer by a black family. And the, uh, th this was one of the agencies that showed uh, improvement in their racial disparities because they've taken the data very seriously. And so they called in this officer and they showed him uh, the the um, dashboard video of the previous car stop, the black family car stop and the following one. In the, in the, the one before and after, it was a white person and the officer was very polite, said, this is my name, this is the reason I stopped you, may I have your documents? And instead, when he went up to the black family, he said, do you have any drugs or guns in your car? Very stern voice. Mm -hmm. And he was surprised when he saw that. He was not aware of doing that. Yeah. So these data can be a way for uh, agencies to reflect on what their actual practices are. And I, I often talk about the fact that a lot of this is implicit bias. We all are inculcated our entire lives with negative racial imagery towards Hispanics and Blacks. And even though we may consciously believe that we're progressive, that we don't you know, see disparities, in fact, unconsciously, we do, and we act on those. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here. There's probably some explicit bias, but what we found was that these disparities exist. There aren't just one or two bad apples in departments. This is prevalent behavior across all officers and departments, most officers and departments. Yeah, you know, I think somehow this type of data needs to be presented um, and explained in a systematic way, right? Um, you know, if if people are willing and receptive to information, um, real information uh, structured and 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 provided uh, to them to to internalize, I think I think we can make a difference. But um, is it true that we don't really have a process like that in any way anywhere? First of all, there's no national database on traffic stops, but there are a number of uh, many, many states do do studies on these. 
And North Carolina is one state who has a lot of data that I know very well. And I followed the process there. And it's been very similar to what we've experienced in Vermont, which is that there is uh, an enormous resistance to hearing these results. And what the police will just say to us is the data are flawed. Uh, we're not racist. You're calling us racist. And they reject the data. Uh, so we're now at a stage in Vermont where um, a couple of agencies have really taken the data seriously and have made some progress. Most have not. And uh, but now what has happened, we, we present we developed a methodology that is pretty straightforward that allows community groups to easily understand our results. In other words, you didn't really use sophisticated tech, uh, econometric techniques, although we we've done that in some separate work. And what we find now are community groups are coming to us and asking us to explain the results to them and asking us to present to city councils and select boards. They now are holding their police departments accountable. But the resistance of the police is something that I can, could not have imagined. Uh, I always felt like the data were sufficient to change people's minds. Uh, and that's not at all what's happened. It's been an uphill battle all the way. The difference in Vermont is that we have a fairly thoughtful legislature. And so the legislature has enacted a lot of uh, policies in response to our study. Yeah, I also wonder, Stephanie, if there is a language problem, right? Um, last uh, four years have been uh, revealing for a lot of people in the US uh, from many different directions. And the term racism uh, has, has gotten a lot of play. Uh, but um, humans are racist, <laughs> you know. Yeah, if you are human and you, you assert you are not racist, uh, it's highly unlikely, as you mentioned before, uh, we, uh, we grew up in clans. Um, even for modern human, what they call the Dunbar's number, is 150, meaning when we get over 150 in a group, uh, we start to fight against each other. We don't, you know, it's really difficult for humans to have a scope of more than 150 really close connections. Um, and so if you take and extrapolate that, yeah, humans are fundamentally racist. It's a multifactorial problem. Uh, and so I wondered from a language perspective, whether we, we need to put this in more of a, uh, a practical context. Uh, I don't know what the right solution is. I'm just posing it, uh, if you see anything there. I, I'm gonna share my thinking on this with you from a stratification perspective. Yeah. Yes, it is normal for humans to categorize. Uh, that is a... Um, you know, it's a cognitive, it's cognitively efficient, right? It uses fewer mental resources to do that. Uh, but there's, uh, there's nothing in that that suggests that the way that we stereotype groups is hierarchical with blacks and Hispanics at the bottom of the hierarchy. That is constructed and that is a function of white supremacy. Uh, I just don't think we can mince words about that. That is, uh, that higher that those stereotypes are cultivated, and they are cultivated to the benefit of the dominant group. Uh, we have seen this. This this is not new, of course. Uh, if you look at 
the emergence of scientific racism in the 1800s, it was to justify slavery and inequality. And uh, this process, you know, continues through in, in a variety of ways. So I think that that's the issue. Yes, you know, yes, we, uh, I agree with you entirely that there's this tribalism content to our lives, but the viciousness uh, in which we create negative stereotypes of people of color uh, uh, is, 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 is a function of an intentional act on the part of dom the dominant group, and I would say white people in the United States, to justify their disproportionate access and control over resources and power. Yeah, yeah. so we see the disease, uh, we see the symptoms. It seems to have metastasized across the entire system. Um, the question remains to be, how do we treat it? Um, and uh, again, I don't really see a lot of policy aspects to this, right? Do, do you, so, so how would you go about changing this, Stephanie? Well, there are so many ways, uh, you know, I mean, one is, uh, um, well, for example, I, I teach a course called The Political Economy of Race, yeah. and I see dramatic changes in my students just over a semester in which they have been exposed to U.S. racial history. They understand themselves and they understand the causes of racial inequality differently. And they begin to be open to their own stereotypes and changing their behavior. So, I, and one of the things that happened, and I would say in part as a result of the work that we did, is that the uh, state of Vermont passed a, um, an ethnic studies bill requiring uh, ethnic studies to be integrated into the K through 12 curriculum. Many police chiefs have told me that that's actually uh, one of the most important kinds of training to do for their officers. But the other is that we have many problems in the criminal justice system with regard to unfair treatment uh, and discriminatory treatment of people uh, of blacks and Latinos in the criminal justice system that leads to their higher rates of mass incarceration. So that creates a stereotype that the police carry around with them and then say, uh, well, of course, I'm going to stop this vehicle. Of course, I'm more suspicious of black drivers because look at all of the black blacks that have been arrested for all of these various um, crimes. So addressing inequality in the criminal justice system, for example, um, black, uh, black, um, blacks who are sentenced in the criminal justice system receive sentences that are 20% longer than similarly situated whites. Uh, you know, this is something we can rectify. Uh, at, at every stage of the game, we can address the sources of inequality that then undermine the stereotypes. Yeah. yeah. Many of the solutions seem to go back to education as a sort of uh, kind of a base base architecture, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just uh, just these issues that we discussed, but, you know, uh, for, for democracy to work, you need some basic uh, levels of education in the in the population. So do you see sort of an education policy, a macro education policy type change we could effect? I think it has to be a specific type of education, which is an honest education about race 
in, in the United States. I, I can't speak as much for other countries with regard to this issue. Uh, but I, I think it's important for people to understand also that uh, in tests that look at racial bias, such as the implicit association test, actually the worst scores are for people with MBAs and medical doctors. <laughs> so it's not just education, but a specific type of education. Yeah. That and, and that is an honest education about race. When I get college students, I get a window into what they've learned in high school, which is very little about racial uh, racial history. Uh, so I would say that that is fundamentally important. I will say the following that I, I've seen changes in, in maybe the last 10 years, for example. I mean, as we focus on these issues, one of the things that you're seeing in the media, in movies, for example, is different roles for African-Americans and Latinx and Asians actually in movies. Whereas for many years, it was just a predominantly white uh, movie industry. And if there were, uh, Asians or African-Americans or Latinos, they were in subservient positions or they were in silent roles and so forth. So that kind of role modeling uh, also contributes to stereotypes. And we're beginning to see changes to that. We're, we're, and the last couple of seasons, for example, of movies show uh, a, a big, you know, an awakening, I would say, uh, of, in creation of more roles a broader set of roles. So there are many levels at which these changes can happen that will affect change in the system as a whole. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, Stephanie, uh, I think this word stratification uh, seems to underlie many of the problems that we discussed, right? So yeah, solutions um, are, are multifactorial ones. You know, you have to create awareness. Um, you have to, as you mentioned, have uh, these types of ideas being discussed right from the start of education, not much later. Um, do you see, uh, I don't know if it exists, is there some sort of stratification index for countries that economists or somebody else has put together? Well, that's such an interesting question. We have indices that look at gender stratification. Race is more difficult because the racial categories, of course, are socially constructed. They're not real. And they differ in every country. And many countries don't keep race data. So it's much more difficult to uh, compare countries with regard to racial stratification. With regard to gender, we actually do. The United Nations... Uh, has a variety of indices, the Gender Equality Index, for example, that ranks countries where uh, you might not be surprised, Norway and Sweden and Denmark and Finland are at the top. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, so we can rank countries in that in that way, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, one issue that comes up um, when we when we look to Denmark and, and Norway and Sweden, New Zealand, uh, is a scale problem. So people say, yes, give me less than 10 million people, I'll give you a good country. <laughs> Anything more than that uh, is going to be difficult. Do you see any relevance to that? No, I think that is entirely, uh, entirely flawed argument. Uh, <laughs> entirely flawed argument. Uh, there are many small countries in which we have terrible things going on with regard to uh, inequality. And yeah. 
many rich, many big countries in which we see good things going on. So I, I just, I don't think country size is really the driving force here. It's people, it's institutions, uh, and uh, that's what we have to look at in policies. Yeah, I mean, the good thing is we have over 200 countries. We have over 200 different experiments going on. Uh, we can pick the, pick the you know, good outcomes. And if you're open enough uh, to learn from new data, we can model uh, model the, the the good outcomes across the world, but it's easier said than done, I think. You know, I think, you know, I, I mean, I've done this work for a long time. I think a lot about these issues and policies and so forth, but here's what I think we have to grapple with. And that is that uh, if you, to reduce inequality, you can do this by uh, improving the well-being of those at the bottom of the distribution. But if you if it, the dominant group will resist that if it comes at a cost to them. So, uh, you know, if you're increasing women's access to jobs and it means that men's access to jobs decreases, then you're going to have a lot of resistance. What you need to do is to improve the well-being of the subordinate group, the disadvantaged group, more rapidly than the well-being of the dominant group so that the dominant group doesn't feel as threatened. But in many cases, that's what is one of the challenges is that the dominant group uh, fears that the subordinate group is trying to supplant them, uh, is you know has designs on their control over property and resources. And there's an entitlement factor, right? Men feel entitled to certain positions. White people feel entitled to positions of power and so forth. And so that's really what we, you know, when your identity becomes tied up by being in a dominant position, you're challenging a person's identity by promoting equality. And we haven't figured that one out. You know, we have not figured that one out. Uh, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons I've spent a lot of my time in the last few years reading a lot uh, in sociology and especially social psychology, because these are issues that economists need help with, uh, that we have to understand how do people behave in groups? How do groups behave in people? Uh, what are the psychological issues that are shaping the way that we react to some of these changes and the, the issue of power and dominance? And, you know, I think we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's what makes me a little bit pessimistic. You know, the question remains to be, given a set of bad initial conditions, can you improve the system? Uh, but I think the way that you're looking at it, you know, it, it, is, um, it is not a zero-sum game. It is sort of a slope management game. Uh, maybe that is, that is a different way of framing it. I think that's a good way to frame it. Uh, that, it, you know, we, it can't be, I, I would say making it a zero sum game uh, dooms it to failure. Uh, yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I mentioned, for example, that I think one of the issues that we haven't really grappled with is this, what I call toxic masculinity, right? Forms of masculinity that really harm men as well as women. And that we really, that masculinity really needs to be redefined just as whiteness needs to be redefined. Uh, and um, that's a complex process, but you know, I personally am an optimist. I've seen changes in my lifetime, uh, I'm more changes with regard to gender than I have seen with regard to race, but I have seen some changes. And I'm, I'm optimistic 
I just think we have to keep doing the research on this to understand what are the things that will move us forward? What are the things that have uh, caused uh, worsening conditions? And to do the best we can. And let me just maybe add one last thing. One of the things I've really come to the conclusion of that if under harsh economic conditions, under issues, uh, conditions of economic insecurity, economic crisis, that is when polarization really happens, right? That uh, ge gender inequality worsens, racism worsens under those conditions. And if we were able to do more to ensure an economic floor under people uh, and to promote greater economic security, there would be less resistance to greater equality. Yeah. So we can do that. And that's where, for example, you know, guaranteed income, uh, a, a, a job guarantee program, many social programs that provide an economic floor under people. That is the single most important thing I think that economists can do to promote, to, to lessen the resistance to intergroup yeah. equality. Right, right. Yeah, we have to remain optimistic. Uh, this has been great, Stephanie. Thanks so much for spending time. It's been you. such a pleasure, Gil. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.